Therefore, remember that at one time, you, Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So take about 10 seconds to put yourself in those shoes, that you are strangers, that you are alienated, that you have no hope and no God. That's where you come from. That's how you were raised. That's how people treated you. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And this is what he accomplished as he brought you near. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He did this by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the light that Jesus was, not only in his preaching and his ministry, in his healing and his obedience, but the light at the end of the tunnel that he presented to those who were separated from you, who were alienated from your people, who were unaware of your promises and your covenants, who had no hope and no help in the world. And Father, these people that Christ died for, you brought in to the same church as your chosen people, Israel. And these people, you brought them in, making one man out of them. These people, you brought them in, making them kingdom citizens, making them members of your household, and making them stones upon which a great architect is designing and building a temple for his dwelling. We thank you, Father, that you are the one that orchestrated all of this. And even as we sit here today, Father, we can share in both the understanding of, of separation, but also we can rejoice in both the present hope and the promises of the future that these Gentile Christians share in Ephesus. Father, help us now, Lord, to come to you as you lead us in verses 19 to 22 to help us get a clear grasp of what it looks like to be this people, to be this new man that you've brought together to be a place in which hostilities among us have been brought down to be a home where being a family member is a place of identity and belonging. Father, we thank you so much for the work of Christ, for his obedience, for his sacrifice, for your perfect love put on display in the sacrifice of your son and your perfect acceptance in his resurrection. We praise you and we pray, Father, that we would come from that posture of finding ourselves as remote as it is in the shoes of these Gentile Ephesians who rejoiced 
in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So today we're going to take the time in these four verses to look at, kind of through the use of the metaphors that Paul gave, what it means to be people that God has brought together, that he has broken free from alienation, that he has brought together to be exchangers, that he is doing a greater work in by making every person that comes to follow Jesus a stone in this building that he is putting together. But this building is not just to create something like we have next door. As meaningful as it is, it is a building. But this building is so much more in that in the building, the presence of God will be there. And in the building, his people will become his house. You know, when we're trying to do anything, I think what we want more than anything is that we know that God is with us. Now, sometimes that's not always the most pure motives, and that sometimes we want God to be with us so that maybe we don't suffer, or we don't make the wrong decisions, or we are people that are considered more blessed than certainly aliens and strangers to the hope and the promises of God. But this is talking about something so much more meaningful, so much more eternal, so much more fulfilling, that when God dwells amongst his people and we become his temple, things change. Things change with us, and God uses us to be a change in the world. So there's three particular metaphors that Paul uses. One is that you become citizens of the kingdom of God. So we're going to look at that a little bit. The second is that you become family members in his household. So we're going to look at that a little bit more. And then finally, you become these stones that God is putting into a building in which Christ is the cornerstone. So we're going to end with that. In fact, Paul spends more of the verses looking at that particular metaphor. And we'll go there. So the first thing that we're going to look at is who we are as saints, who we are as fellow citizens in the God's kingdom. In, in verse 19, he spoke about this particular metaphor in that he knew that the people that were listening to this, that he was directing towards, shared this in common. That number one, that these Gentiles were not Jewish. And we think we're not Jewish, not a big deal, but if you're talking about the covenants and the promises of God, being familiar with names like many of us are of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, of names like David, of names that God made promises with people through. These are the names that we still cling to because these are the names from which Jesus, the promised Messiah, came through at God's perfect timing to the right places, to the right people, to the right family. And so we connect with these names, but to know that these Gentiles, when they were being addressed, they did not come to the church of Ephesus with these similar names and promises and understanding. So for many of us, if we were raised in a church in which the Bible was preached, in which the story of Jesus was told, in which the talk of the cross, in which the hope of heaven was expressed and articulated over and over again, we are already so much more blessed than these Gentiles that Paul was addressing in Ephesians. Because they have no clue. They may have worshipped their pagan gods. They may have worshipped their local deities. They may have bowed down to the emperor as they needed to. They may have had other affiliations and affinities of people greater than them or gods greater than them to worship. But they did not know the God and the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they were separated from these important things, ideas, and promises. Secondly, the Jews treated them like second-class citizens. 
So these are people that if you were next to them, that, that you would consider them to be unclean. So you wouldn't want to be near them. You would tell your children to stay away from them. You would call them derogatory names. In fact, Jesus refers to many of those names as examples of how Gentiles were considered. They were called dogs. They were called impure. They were considered people that were vile to God and God's people. And that's the very thing that they were unclean. So imagine carrying this stigma of who you are because of who you are to the people that said that they were the people of God. With God's word revealed. With God's presence filled in their physical temple. But here's what Christ has done as he opened the door with his death and resurrection. He made people citizens. So when you're a citizen of a particular kingdom, what makes you the same as everyone else is not so much who you are personally, but it's that you are somebody that is officially recognized as being under the government of our particular place. Okay, so you would have the same rights, privileges, and access to various facilities and other things, services, ministries, so on and so forth, if you're a citizen of a country, or at least it should be the case. And you are finally not refugees anymore. Refugees are people that run. Refugees are people without a home. It doesn't matter where they physically are, but they don't belong anywhere. You are no longer a refugee if you are a citizen of a country. And interestingly enough, if Jesus is king, then our identity with Christ is actually our primary citizenship. That he is where we find refuge. We become actually refugees in Christ. Literally, in Christ, we find refuge in him. But as for our citizenship in this world, you know, we might be a variety of citizens. We might even be literal political refugees on a run, but we could be people that find ourselves in Jesus. So your status is the same. Your position is the same. You might come from a variety of different walks of life. You might be from different schools. You might have different jobs. You might live in different places. But you're citizens in God's kingdom. And that's the great equalizer and uplifter of your status that the Gentiles did not have when they were contrasted to God's people, Israel. So that's one metaphor. I want to move on from this. Secondly, you're a part of God's household. So instead of being aliens and strangers, which was, we just read this, you're now brothers and sisters. Mind you, we're all adopted. Okay? So we're all adopted. None of us were born originally until we're born again and adopted. Okay? But before, this is how the Gentiles were. They had zero relationships. So it's one thing to have zero country affiliation, zero people affinity, but they have zero relationship with the Jews as far as the Jews can help it. They did not want to have anything to do with Gentiles. So then people might coexist. You know, you might all be under the Roman Empire. You might be living next door to one another, but you don't really want to be with them. So there's certainly not a sense of kinship and closeness. And so family does what family does. They watch out for their own. Right? And you're not going to take that time and effort to care for someone that you consider to be outside your family, outside your people, outside your culture, outside your values. But who are we after Christ? You become family. God uses that metaphor because it is one that we can all identify with. We all come from some kind of family. Now, I'm not saying that your family was 
healthy or broken. I'm not saying your family was intact and full or your family was just filled with lots of you know, brokenness and sin. I'm not saying the quality of your family, but you all came from somewhere. Okay? And that's the first thing that God wanted to remind his people that they are family first and foremost. And to the extent to which our earthly families are messed up, actually, it should make us long more for the identity of being God's family. It should. I hope it does. Secondly, family members have responsibilities and roles. And when you first hear that, whether it's thinking back to maybe you know, your parents making you do things or so on and so forth, even now, certainly all of us are to some extent under some kind of obligation you know, to our family and parents um, if we are making an effort and we care about them and we feel connected to them. But that actually then gives you a place of belonging, whether it's intergenerational and in that you would reach up and build relationship and, and learn and talk and, and kind of check in on, on the older relatives, or you would reach down and, and care you know, for the younger ones. Uh, these responsibilities and roles of making a family work, they're not bad. They actually remind us that we have a place. And in God's house, in God's family, we have spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit given to us that are meant to be used to build up the common good and grow the people of God. We have different roles and responsibilities, and that's a good thing because that means we belong. And then finally, our identity and belonging, our last name, our family is rooted in Christ. So it, it's a greater sense of what you do, but it changes who you are. That you're not an orphan anymore. You can be very busy, you can do a lot of things, but what matters is that you're not an orphan. So these two metaphors of being a citizen and of being brothers and sisters are what Paul starts with. Now this week, uh, I spent a week with uh, three others from our pastoral staff uh, Pastor Chiho and also uh, Brian and uh, also Frankie. And we spent a week at Birmingham, Alabama, which I never thought I would go there for any reason. Uh, but we went there for a week. And on the last day, which was yesterday, we took a tour of the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute, which, and as well as the church across the street, where um, the bombing happened that kind of led to a lot of things snowballing and civil rights movements uh, really you know, kind of making steps. But here's just some pictures from there. Um, on the top left was like this big uh, mural and this big display that had to do with the 16th Street uh, Church, Baptist Church bombing, where four girls were killed by a bunch of dynamite underneath the basement. That was tragic. Uh, on the lower left was like this uh, particular display that you know, was talking about how you know, churches at the time were very, very segregated because the white churches and the white Christians didn't want the, the black Christians to, to worship together with them, so then they form all their own churches, and there's kind of a display to all kind of that, and, and so on and so forth, that, what the life looked like in the church um, during that time. On the upper right was this cross where um, a burning happened with Ku Klux Klan, and, and there's a, you know, this, the, the gown and, and, and the mask of, of somebody. It's funny, when you look on the little sign, it says, uh, Donor anonymous. I'm like, of course it is. Who's going to say that they donated that? But, so that, that's on the upper right, which for us might look like a Halloween costume, but at that time, it instilled fear, deep fear in the lives and the hearts of black people. And then lower right is the 16th Street Baptist Church, just taking it from across the street from the, the museum. The Birmingham is probably famous, um, among other things, in that it was considered a place in which all kinds of conflict was happening, and Martin Luther King Jr. even called it probably the most segregated city in the United States. Uh, there was, like, no black 
you know, policemen or firemen in the 60s at all. You know, they, they wouldn't let that happen. Schools were certainly segregated. They held out fronts when laws were passed for integration. They held out fronts. There were threats all over the place, bombings everywhere. There was, you know, kind of a nickname for Birmingham, Bombingham, because there was all this uh, racial strife and conflict happening. Why am I bringing this up? Because I think we live in a time in which we don't relate to Ephesians 2. I don't think we relate to a time in which you could be in the same city but really hate each other. Or you could be neighbors and really despise each other. I think we all kind of semi-get along. We just don't relate. But what is happening there is much closer to a Jew-Gentile relationship in the time of Jesus and in the time of Paul. Now, whether there was actual violence happening in the mind and in the heart in terms of how Jews perceived Gentiles, they saw them as the worst. They saw them as the devil, unclean, impure, people not to be near, people not to be close to. And the reason why I was just in some ways really a you know, blown away by this experience. Because I think it opened my eyes more to the beauty of the gospel in that it's able to bring people that, that hate each other. And it's, it's changed so much now, you know, in terms of maybe what is considered human rights is so different now. And, and to some extent, maybe some of that is uh, so much more selfish and so distorted in what it means to have rights. But when they're talking about, you know, rights, civil rights back then, it's just that you have people of different colors, different upbringings, different backgrounds that could not live like they are shared citizens and that they are common people. One group of people was considered less than another group. One group of people were considered less worthy citizens or people not to be, you know, just known and people not to, to relate to and associate with. And the displays in the museum were just, it was just uh, really eye-opening, so... And for me, it really helped us see, you know, what it really looks like, you know, when even people hate each other so deeply. And then you think that we're only 50 years away from that even now. So certainly there's a whole generation of people that are still alive that have lived through that and that have went through that and that grew up in that. So it's just something for us to remember how deep the hatred was then, but more importantly than how deep the hatred was in Ephesians, when people saw each other in that way. You know, when you're in, in a place of being that second-class citizen, of being people that, you know, uh, we're not worthy, we're not good enough, you could be in the same place, but you would be segregated. You know, you're always feeling vulnerable. Uh, and that doesn't matter how many papers or how many credentials that you have, things that you're carrying with you, people can always find ways to... to uh, hurt you or, or to persecute you for no reason. Um, and then there's one group of people that's, that's actually trying to subjugate the press in the street, the lower class of people. That also leads me to kind of think about one of the big things that we talked about this week at SBC. So the SBC, we're a co- collaboration of 47,000 churches. But it's not like top-down, like the Catholic church where you have like the Pope that tells everyone else what to do. Like we're a bunch of autonomous churches. Like every church, we make our own decisions. But we decide to give financially and also support theologically, um, you know, kind of the decisions and the teachings and so on and so forth of the denomination. So we're the largest Protestant denomination in the United States, and there's a lot of us. 
80% white, though. So it's kind of interesting whenever you go to an annual meeting, you realize that, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of Asian. So it really stands out. But this whole entire week, the, the conversation was about this one particular topic, which you actually will hopefully start hearing more about in our church. It was on this topic of sexual abuse in the church. And the reason why um, it left such a, a big imprint was because it was, a, I would say it was, a, it was a central focal point of the week in that, you know, the president made comments about it, but then we had sessions where we prayed and lamented together. There was sharings about things that we're going to do about it. There was uh, sharings of testimonies by people and, and women that were hurt and abused in the past and the ways in which they were neglected and overlooked in which certain churches, you know, covered up, protected pastors, sent them on their way, and there were no consequences. Um, it was just ugly stuff. It's things that you think wouldn't happen in a church. But there was this one part, you know, where we were, again, going through a process of lamenting and praying for victims, for justice, for the right things to be done in churches. And the president asked, uh, if anyone has been sexually abused here in our midst, or you know of someone that has, you know, if you feel ready, it's okay if you don't, if you're not. But if you feel ready, you know, uh, please stand if this would help as a part of your healing, right, to go maybe to be public. And you just know that, you know, you're going to be curious. But when in a group of about maybe, you know, seven, 8,000 of us sitting in a basketball arena, when you looked around, there was probably a few hundred of people that stood up. So it's not like, every, like it's not like, you know, out of this room, you would have like 10. I mean, I'm not talking about that many, but out of this room, you would have three people that stood up. So then you know that these things happen in churches, and certainly they can happen in our church. And so there's been things that they, you know, we're talking about things, you know, for us to, whether it's like give a background types of other things, training, you know, pastors and staff and so on and so forth, you know, reporting because you just don't. But it's just that bottom line, if Christ has set people free and you are a family and you are common citizens, these things cannot happen in the church of God without consequence because God cares. That's why God sent his son and he died for sinners. This is not okay in the gospel preaching church, in the gospel preaching denomination. And so this whole week, I've been just thinking about this passage, but then also God's been kind of bringing up these live illustrations, maybe our modern versions of what Paul was trying to use, that, hey, your family, your citizens, and finally your stones, what Christ did needs to mean something to you. It's not just something that you know, yeah, these are great metaphors, that's great, I'm glad I can memorize this or know this for myself. But to the extent in which Christ has changed who we are, given us a present salvation, but a future hope, that needs to impact us in some way in terms of how we live for him and how we live towards one another. And so I want to end with just these last three verses. Uh, there's a, a few things that you find here that's helpful. So he uses a construction metaphor that's helpful for us to, to begin with. Um, earlier I mentioned the walking wall facilities and so on and so forth. So once everything's broken down, guess what? You start bringing things up. But just like normal construction, it's, the demolition is easy. I mean, for God, it's different. I'm not saying it's easy for us, but God did it. But at any project, it's actually the building up that takes a long time, and the building up that's difficult, and the building up that has delays, and so on and so forth. And so I want us to think construction process, not that different, in that it's a work in progress, 
But see, God's people have a part in it because God is the builder. Okay? So here's what we find here. These stones that are being formed together into a building share a few things in common. Number one, that they are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Okay, so how do we know what the apostles and prophets said and did? God's word. So for us today, who we were not alive during the time of the apostles and prophets, like many of the Ephesians, they could have been, um, we trust in this. So God's word tells us about who he is. God's word reveals to us the work and the hope of Christ in the gospel. God's word, God's word shows us how everything will wrap up and come together in his plan. God's word reminds us and reveals to us his perfect character of love and justice and goodness so that we can love him and love others. Okay, so it begins here, which is why here at Turf, Sunday mornings, whatever it is that God's people gather together, we will often, if not go directly to his word, we would talk about how to live out his word because that's the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. But the, this, all of this points to one thing in, in verse second half of verse 20, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone is the most important part of the foundation of the building. Uh, the cornerstone anchors. The cornerstone points all the stones in the direction. The, the cornerstone also bears the, the bulk of the weight of the entire building because everything converges in on that point. And so everything that we do, whether personally or corporately, should point us towards Christ. Right? Towards deeper faith and trust towards greater magnification and glory of him in our lives and in the world towards deeper conviction to obey and to pursue his commands and to make disciples. That's what it means to make Christ the cornerstone. And that's the direction he's shaping his people. Verse 21 is interesting. The whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You guys play the Legos. But, but if you're building something, what are you doing? You're kind of, you know, adding one piece at a time, one piece at a time, one piece at a time. That's like the picture that, that, that Paul is painting here. That there's this growing temple, growing building. Jesus is in the center, right? Kind of cornerstone here. You have the, the, the foundation that's built on God's word through the apostles and the prophets. And then the building's constantly growing. There's stones being added all the time. Someone is adding Lego bricks on this foundation that is growing to support more and more weight as the building gets bigger, but the building continues to get bigger. That's why Christ is the cornerstone, because things are being built on top. And each of us, as we've come to repent and trust in the work of Christ, we become that stone. And the, the way that it's described is that there's like this contractor that's putting the stones in place, like the, the Lego you know, maker, so on and so forth, right? But then he's not just putting them in place, he's kind of fusing them together so that they go exactly where they're supposed to go. Uh, this, this word uh, is a combination of, of, a, of a prefix that speaks of joining together, but the word itself of joining together is related to when Adam brought or God brought Adam and Eve together, man and woman together, and joined them together and made them one. And so this is more than just somebody that's kind of haphazardly 
building something, but this is something that in building something is creating an identity and a unity with the greater whole for every single piece so that they are exactly where God had intended them to be. It's a really beautiful way of seeing how as the church is growing and the gospel is going forth and we just celebrated Missions Month or commemorated Missions Month and noted Missions Month, how everything that we're doing to proclaim the gospel and make disciples is actually a part of how God is building and adding bricks to this temple for the purpose of what? In verse 22. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in the Old Covenant, you know, at the time Ephesians was written, the temple was probably still there because it was destroyed in 78. Okay, so there's a temple. There's the Jewish temple, sacrificial system, uh, priesthood and everything else, animals coming in, killed, burnt, you know, all the garbage and blood and everything, you know, kind of disposed of. But there's like a smoke that is always coming out of the temple. Uh, and that smoke and the physical presence of the temple and the spaces, Gentiles have to stay out here and women stay out here. But this, in, the, in the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, God's presence was there. That's the idea. That there's this enclosed space in which God's presence was there in and amongst the physical structure. But there's a difference in the New Covenant. In the New Covenant, God is actually, instead of being kind of physically in a place, God fills every single brick, if you can imagine. So the building has God's presence because every single brick that is being placed on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus as a cornerstone, every brick has the presence of God in it. So it's not a particular room. And it's not a situation in which you can separate out people that you don't think should be there, near to God. The building exists, the temple exists because God is in every single person that he is then putting carefully, intentionally, perfectly, masterfully into a temple in which he then dwells. See, if God is in every single piece of the building, by default, God is there. And so this building is so much more magnificent and so much more beautiful and amazing than even what was considered a wonder in that time in Jerusalem. This is the work that God is doing in the New Covenant. And he desires to fill his people both personally and he desires to fill his people corporately. This happens in a local church. That this happens then where if you are a follower of Jesus, there's both this personal call to pursue him, to, to know his word, to obey his commands, but then there's also this corporate call to belong to him so that when the Bible speaks about citizens of the kingdom and members of a family and stones in the temple, you don't go, I don't relate to that because you're not connected to a church and you're not committed to a church. The church family is the practical way by which you would relate to everything that was just said in Ephesians 2. Otherwise, you don't relate. You're not living out the spiritual reality that should define you, but yet you're kind of doing things on your own. So, so I want to end with a couple of uh, thoughts here for application. Uh, first of all, um, which one of these three metaphors, Susan, family of stones, encourages and or challenges you as a follower of Jesus? It needs to hit you personally to kind of consider. But here's an application. Um, 
if you have not committed to join a local church by being a member, it doesn't matter which local church per se, although if you're all here, I highly suggest that you join here. I want you guys to explore the reasons why you don't want to connect or be committed as a family member to a church. Because I feel like that's where you're missing out of this corporate blessing of your identity as a Christian. You're saying that I believe in Jesus. You're saying I follow Jesus, but that I belong to nowhere. I commit to no one. Imagine a brick, then, that is supposed to be part of a building and supposed to feel like it is and see that it is. But it's just kind of left on the side. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem today, you have the ruins of the brick temple. There's tons of bricks on the side. It's on the ground. It's just there. People try to steal them, you're not supposed to, but it's just there, okay? That's not what the Christian life should look like. We're called to belong, and we're called to commit, because that was God's grand design for his people, that we are both personally converted and born again, but then we are corporately committed and identified. So so that's question number one, uh, application number one, your church membership. And if you're a member, how can you live it out? Right, in this way, right, as a brother or sister, family member, as somebody that is you know, a citizen of, of the same kingdom, how do you see and view and treat one another? And also to continue to be a part of what the master builder is doing and making disciples, adding more stones. Right? The second thing is for us maybe to, to reflect a little bit on ways in which um, the church has hurt us. And maybe if we're willing to be honest with ourselves, the ways in which we have hurt people in the church, and think, is this what the promise of the gospel is supposed to look like? Where do I need God to to fill me the way that he is filling every single stone? Where do I need his healing? Where do I need his help? But then also, if you have hurt somebody, where do you need to repent? Where do you need to change? Where do you need to surrender to God who sent his son to pay the price and the penalty of your sin so that in repenting and following him that you may be saved? It begins with us because God's spirit dwells in every single believer, but not every believer is right in him. We need to have a heart check on that. Because until Jesus comes back to the church, until we're in heaven face to face with our maker, we're going to sin against people, and we'll be sinned against by people. But in the church, this whole kingdom, family, temple thing is supposed to look like that in our church. It's supposed to look like that in every church. But we know we fall short. So what do we need to repent of? And also maybe for ourselves, what are ways in which you know, we need to ask God to, to fill and to anchor and to change us and to encourage us? And to the extent in which we're able to do that for one another, I think that's what family looks like. And maybe that's something to think about. Okay, so let me go ahead and close this in prayer. Uh, and then uh, Vince is going to come up and just uh, close a little more song. And then we'll go into our community group, okay? And you can talk about this uh, if the opportunity comes up. Three metaphors of citizen, family, and stones. Encourages, challenges you as a follower of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you so much, God, for tonight for reminding us, Lord, through this short passage of the impact both in this life and eternally, of Christ's work. Not just for the Ephesian Gentiles of Paul's time, but also for us today. We pray, Lord, that you would use this time as we worship you in song, Lord, to remind us of 
both our need to depend on you, but also our need to repent of our sins continually. Uh, we pray, Father, that you would make us in this church, beginning even here with turf, Father, to be a place in which we experience your citizenship, where we belong to one another as family, and where we are being a part of what you are doing all around the world with the preaching of the gospel and making of disciples in the power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of Christ into this temple in which you dwell. Help us, Father, even as we sent out the Taiwan team today here in Turf and prayed for JC, Father, help us to engage in this personally for ourselves. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Help us, God, to worship you in spirit and truth as we finish this time. In Jesus' name I pray.